0: and thanks for joining me, and E. Anloon, for this RT Radio 1 Davis Now Lectures podcast. In this episode, we'll hear a talk from Irish poet Ivan Boland from the Thomas Davis Lectures archives on the life and work of Irish writer Kate O'Brien, first broadcast in 1997, the centenary year of the Limerick-born writer's birth. Boland recalls her one and only meeting with Kate O'Brien and how her appreciation of O'Brien's writing grew over the years and how, while it reflected another time, broke important new ground in its literary portrayal of the lives of women in particular. Here's Ivan Boland. The living memory of a writer
1: is one of the real gifts which one generation can offer to the next. It's the gift the present makes to the future. After all, that's the way we add substance to style and accuracy to our reading. But it isn't an unambiguous gift. If it was, I wouldn't feel as hesitant as I do about my attempts to remember and locate Kate O'Brien in this piece. My actual physical memory of Kate O'Brien requires little enough retelling. I met her just once when she came to our house for dinner, when my husband Kevin and I were both in our 20s. He was editing an anthology of short stories, and she read out after dinner the fragment of a novel he'd been proud to accept for it. It was called Constancy. I remember that she sat in our new, sparsely furnished house, over at a sofa by the window in the front room. A frail woman by then, within a few years of her death, with a beautiful voice and a deep theatrical cadence as she read out her fiction. The rainy October darkness unraveled from the half-built suburb where we now lived, as I listened to her, out towards the lights and boundaries of a city. This was the start of the 1970s, a city which was just on the edge of a new Europe, a new urbanity, a new identity, all attributes and adventures which were poignantly at odds with the grace and symmetry of Kate O'Brien's Ireland. And since this is partly a personal retrospect, I have to remember myself as well, sitting opposite her, listening. I was in my mid-twenties. I suppose what strikes me now as I look back is just how lacking in substance and sophistication was my way of thinking about her, let alone talking to her. I was already beginning to have some questions, about the fierce and structured Irish literary tradition, which was all I had so far encountered as a young writer. But those questions stopped well short of any context in which I could place her. In the 20th century, for instance, the Irish fiction I had read was mostly the realistic short fiction of O'Faylon and O'Connor. In the 19th century, I had read choppily and selectively, from Edgeworth to Moore. If I thought at all, I thought the Ireland they wrote about was a given, a visible place with many stories and one manifest destiny. I also thought a literary tradition was a relatively simple run of good and memorable books defined by its inclusions. In the years to come, I would change my mind about almost all of this and her writing would be part of what would help me to change it. And I would start to know that it was writers like her who show us that literary traditions, after all, are fragile and fallible affairs. But for now, on that October night, what I noticed were telling details which were still not quite enough to tell me what I needed to know. That reading I listened to from her new novel, which, incidentally, was never finished and never published. That reading had force and charm. But her way of speaking was also revealing. It was both eloquent and alien, with a hint of a literary milieu lost somewhere between Limerick and Bloomsbury. Her gestures could be elaborate, and her conversational tone shifted forwards and back from irony to sentimental rhetoric. I suppose the short way of saying all that is that to my eyes, Kate O'Brien was neither an Irish writer nor a woman writer in the accepted sense of those terms, that is, in the only terms I knew at that time. What I didn't know, and what I do know now, is that I was looking that autumn night at a sexual, social, and imaginative exile from both those categories that the exile itself was of sufficient intensity to change the categories in Irish literature, that in fact Cato O'Brien had already broken new ground in Irish writing, and that one day I would end up standing on some of it. But at that point, I don't really think I would have known how to distinguish the idea of influence from the much more simple one of admiration. I certainly admired her, but probably as a reader at that point, rather than a writer. On the other hand, even sitting there that evening, I could have said to her, but didn't, exactly when her work came into my life, rather than just into my literary consciousness. And the fact that it had had something to do with this very new house she was sitting in. About ten months earlier, nearly a year before the dinner I'm remembering... We had moved out to the house from a flat in Raglan Road. The moving day was as bleak as moving days usually are. All our books were in cardboard boxes. All our clothes were in suitcases. Our coffee mugs were upside down and wrapped in newspaper and tea chests. It was the heart of winter, and the day of moving was cold, glittery December. Like everyone else, I had dreaded moving. We were going from the rooms we knew to the ones we didn't, from the end of a temporary life to the start of a permanent one. So I wanted something to read for those blank times in those first days. And the books that somehow seemed to have floated to the top of the packing cases were Kate O'Brien's. And so I found myself in a house full of unseasoned wood and fresh paint, looking out on an unfinished garden and reading presentation parlour. If ever there was a book which never foresaw a new suburb in an urban Ireland and which was certainly never intended to be the presiding spirit of the move to one, this is it. It is a deceptively merry glance at the family influences around Kate O'Brien in her childhood. Here is her Aunt Annie, for instance, always late for Christmas celebrations, pretty and vague caught in the affectionate mirror of Kate O'Brien's late prose. Here is her grandfather Thornhill, a Cromwellian descendant, who married a good-looking cork woman in 1862, but not, by Kate Brand's somewhat exacting standards, good-looking enough. I say she brought good looks, she writes rather sharply, but they were of the Roman emperor kind that blunted here and there in descent the sharp, clean-aged beauty of Grandfather's line. And I think that certain descendants, Aunt Fan for one and I for another, can blame Grandmother Thornhill in some measure for our decline from good looks into a too heavy handsomeness. The book I was reading on those unsettled mornings provides a rare hint about the anomalies of Kate O'Brien's background and her choices as a writer her mother's origins in Kilfenan for instance her mother's beginnings in a small town looking southeast to the Knockmealdown mountains and further again to the Blackwater valley as she describes it it seems remote and peaceful nevertheless and yet she makes it clear that for her and for her mother that town lay on the fault line of the irish 19th century For a novelist who did not, by and large, choose to narrate the accepted Irish story, she offers an interesting catalogue of exclusions here, under the guise of speculating about her mother's childhood influences. From the 1840s, she writes, Through the potato blight, the famine, the emigrant trail to the coffin ships at Queenstown, on through the pitiless fifties of starvation, eviction, and hatred, the agitations and despairs of Fenians and ribbon men, to the wild hopes of the land wars and the land league, the flame of courage lighted by Davitt and Parnell. In those, any child growing up in a poor or country place, on the land or in a little town, would be aware by more than hearsay of fear and misery, and of the savageries of social injustice. Kate O'Brien's mother died in her thirties, leaving her and her sisters orphaned. This retrospect on the possible influences on her mother's childhood is an odd tour guide about what she didn't write about. Apart from some references in Without My Cloak and occasional asides in other books, She did not join the community of Irish fiction writers from George Moore to Mary Lavin, who tried to unravel the effects of just those things she lists above, the potato blight, the famine, the emigrant trail. She did not take the road her mother's childhood memories might have opened backwards into Irish history. Why not? There are some other clues in Presentation Parlour, and they are worth looking at. Here, for instance, is a portrait of her father. He was short, stocky, Roman-headed, she writes, with thick, close-cut dark hair, bright blue eyes and a clipped moustache. He dressed well in tweed cutaways. His hands were freckled, expressive and well cared for. Everything about him was of good taste and quality, from cigar to boot to handkerchief. He had superb teeth, and all 32 of them went down with him into his grave in his 63rd year. This is Kate O'Brien's father. When his father, an ambitious and successful horse breeder in Limerick, manages to arrange the marriage between his son and that young girl from Kilfanan, the aura is of a new prosperity. Now here is some more information about her father, on the eve of his marriage. He was a romantic, she says, a man of imagination. He had bought some historic O'Brien diamonds from the House of the Earls of Clare and had had them set in a ring for Catty. When I was young, there was a certain mystery about the way in which Kate O'Brien's work was received. It wouldn't be right to say it was dismissed, but neither were the most serious claims made for it. In fact, all the dangerous adjectives which diminish an achievement somehow clung to it. It was too Goldsworthy and too Catholic, too social, too sentimental. Its means were good, so the argument went, but its ends were slight. The canon of Irish fiction, which ironically even then was more volatile and open than the Irish poetry I knew better, navigating a territory as it did between its reference points of realism and experiment, shifting its vocabulary from Frank O'Connor to Miles Nogopolin. Nevertheless, that canon seemed to have no categories in which to enfold her, and no language with which to admit her. The reasons for this aren't immediately easy to find. They have something to do with audience and the expectations of fiction in a new society, I'm sure. But they also have something to do, I've no doubt, with those two contrasting quotations I've just read. Here, on the one hand, is the Ireland of a broken century, which her mother may have been a mute witness to in Kilfanan. Those dark stations of famine, emigration, poverty, repression... But here, on the other hand, are the O'Brien Diamonds, the polished features and impeccable hands of her father, the women of her immediate family who figure in presentation parlour, dressed exuberantly in anglophile silks and always ready to search out the most fashionable hats. In fact, Kate O'Brien makes no bones about these contradictions when she discusses her light-hearted Aunt Annie. That is why I refer here, she writes, to the public woes of the land war and of Parnell, which were the backcloth of Aunt Annie's happiest years, because in later life I never heard her mention either, nor, of course, did I ever hear of any other of my aunts speak of Parnell. But as I knew how very deeply and angrily Mary and Fan in the convent felt and remembered evictions and land wrongs, Often as a girl, I wondered how much or how little that so near past had meant to Annie. I never heard. Let me backtrack now a little bit and for a purpose. Let me create again that winter morning, sitting in my new kitchen, looking out on that garden. Let me try to infer the awkward Ireland of raw and practical purposes which reeled out from my house to the very edges of the Dublin foothills that mushroom 1970s country of overnight housing, European finance, and a new struggle for prosperity. And here was I, who would live in the midst of that, who would bring my children up in it, reading about another Ireland. How much was that other Ireland a true part of Kate O'Brien's achievement? How much was it a central part of her theme? I think this is where I first really entered Kate O'Brien's work, At this exact point where she refused to make her characters, her relatives, her remembered connections speak about an Ireland which existed more eloquently in their silence than in their speech. I had grown up seeking out and reading the ready-made statements of Irish realistic fiction, Guests of the Nation by O'Connor, the early fictions of O'Fuelon. It was a fiction of its time and place, stating its purposes clearly and eloquently. But here was a writer prepared to go back to the most ambiguous truths about a country. This is what delayed her recognition, I'm sure of it. Her Ireland was full of shadows, registering that swift and amnesiac arc which leapt suddenly from the sorrows of Kilfinan to the O'Brien Diamonds, with seemingly nothing in between. But there was something in between. There was a class which Kate O'Brien understood, which she had emerged from, and which she clearly understood to have made the world at a price. A world of increasing wealth and uneasy conscience, where the women wore stays and rouged their cheeks, had their clothes made by Dublin dressmakers, and tried to forget the hauntings of the past. This was Catholic Ireland. It was never nationalist Ireland. Steadily, obstinately, as she recorded, it had shut out the cacophony of the times, the land war, the evictions, the disgrace of Parnell. As the 19th century wore on and the 20th began, this prosperous class loaded its tables with food, its sideboards with silver and stopped its ears to rumours of rebellion and self-determination. She may have romanticised them in Without My Cloak, but she certainly didn't in The Ante Room. Years ago, quite by chance, I saw a short television interview with Frank O'Connor. In it, he spoke about the craft of fiction, his fiction. He was asked about the sorts of decisions he made when he came to create his characters. And he singled out a story of his called The Mad Lomasneys. It was part of what he intended, he said, to show how in the confined spaces of small Irish towns and small communities there could be big spirits and big minds and restless individuality. I've had to paraphrase him here, of course, but not much. At the time, what he said struck me deeply. There is something romantic and generous about that kind of Irish fiction, the sort of narrative to which by now it must be clear I do not think Kate O'Brien belongs. There is something romantic about it because it puts a collision course between the power of place and the force of individuality, and there is something generous about it because it is attentive to the dramas of a small country in a century crucial to its self-determination. The problem really is that for far too long, those familiar adventures in prose and self-discovery have been allowed to formulate the questions and definitions around Kate O'Brien's achievement. And so we missed far too much of it for far too long, Kate O'Brien is not about the collision course between place and spirit. And if that is the only frame in which we can consider a certain kind of Irish narrative, then we are going to miss the subtle estrangement of this woman, who had a completely different idea of the relationship between inner and outer worlds, and who offered those as a writer. If we want the small towns and familiar afternoons of fiction like Frank O'Connor's, then we're going to look in vain for it in her work. Kate O'Brien was really not interested in creating characters who are, in the end, animated commentaries on a place or a country. She was interested in different things. I think she was interested in creating women from an outer world who yet had an inner one of such intensity that they ended up with no outer world at all. Spain, Ireland, the convent, the marriage. All places and institutions failed her characters. Agnes Mulqueen, Mary Lavelle, that lady, Saint Teresa. Their only local habitation and their only name for their inner world was passion. I think this theme sharply divides Kate O'Brien from the fiction writers of her generation in Ireland. And it's really the place where my connection with her grows strongest. When we come to measure a writer, I think we have to move beyond the works they wrote. Although, of course, the works they wrote should remain primary in considerations. But I do think we have to look beyond them to the questions those works have left to us. Kate O'Brien came on a very long journey to be the writer she was, not just from Limerick to UCD or from Belsize Avenue in London to Strand Hill in Limerick, not just from being a governess in Bilbao to her flat in James Street in London during the war when she was with the Ministry of Information. Her interior journey was far harder and more rigorous than that. She was a sexual and imaginative dissident in a country and at a time when the most anxious conservatisms governed everything about our new self-definitions as a country. And just as our nationalism was affirming in the 20s and 30s, So if you look closely, you can see that our fictions came under intense, if invisible, pressure to be part of that affirmation. And this finally is where my unease lies with Frank O'Connor's statement, and my appreciation of Kate O'Brien keeps growing. It does seem to me that when you set up that sort of connection, which Frank O'Connor proposed, between a place and an individual, where the extent of one is the mirror of the constraints of the other, you end up making, in a muted way, some fairly comfortable statement about the way in which imagination can flourish in tight corners. You also end up mapping out a relentless optimism, which I believe has been one of the true weaknesses of our literature. The claims which a national agenda makes on a literature are suspect at best, But they are in nothing more suspect than this, that they make the individual spirit the witness to the collective triumph. And even if that is the tendency of most national movements, I don't think literature should comply. To be fair, the idea of the affirming relation between place and imagination has been almost forced on our literature by our history. And yet that in itself may be a good reason to resist it. And Kate O'Brien did. Her portraits of women in her best work are deeply and powerfully pessimistic. They show how little chance there was for the inner world of her women, filled with dreams and questions as they were, to find any outer world to repose in at all. And so passion consumed the difference, and passion burned away the distance. Agnes Mulqueen at the end of the anteroom, which may well be Kate O'Brien's best and darkest book. With her mother dying in a room upstairs in the old house, Agnes Mulqueen stands in the garden at Melick, thinking of all the betrayals that are going to be involved if she gives way to her passion for her sister's husband. She has come out there in the frosty starlight to discuss with Vincent, this husband, the maze of impossibilities which their feelings are leading towards. Towards the end, she realizes the sheer absurdity of having the freedoms she needs to flourish. Then she understood her sentimental mistake, the book says. There was no pacification here, no freedom There was no such thing she ought to have known as kissing him goodbye and saying, God bless you. Love had been painful in fantasy, but here, in its clumsy truth, it was anguish, with the worst of it that its moment must pass. Agnes Mulqueen is just one example. There are other women in Kate O'Brien's fictions who are shown to be at risk or at least cut off and stifled, but not because they didn't speak about Irish history or had their dresses made in Dublin or failed to be articulate witnesses to famine or emigration. No. They are first endangered and then destroyed because Kate O'Brien created characters whose inner lives had far outgrown the outward circumstances which could have contained them. Whether in the Melick of the Antiroom or the Spain of Mary Lavelle, these women take their burden of self-recognition to an impossible end. And because she resisted the pressure to create affirming and reassuring portraits of these women's situations, I think of Kate O'Brien's work as the place to which Irish writing by women can safely trace at least part of its origins. Because there, the pressure's and sentimentality of a national literature will be resisted, just as the equal temptation to create women of a false romantic stature is also contested. Like her great successor, Mary Lavin, she does not flinch from the bad fit between the inner life of a woman of vision and spirit and the Irish world of custom and decorum in which such women so often found themselves. I've no doubt that outside her fictions, she found and continued to find her own self there as well. I think the recognition of the careful dissidence in her books really does alter our sense of Irish fiction and deepens our sense of Irish society. But finally, of course, her achievement goes well beyond that. The pleasure, distinction and grace of a Kate O'Brien novel is something no fiction reader should ever be without. And I count myself lucky that, as one of her loving readers over many years, I haven't been.
0: That was poet Van Boland from the 1997 Davis Now Lecture Series dedicated to the life and work of Irish writer Kate O'Brien, first broadcast in the centenary year of O'Brien's birth. Look out for more talks from this series and subscribe to the Davis Now Lectures podcast for talks on a host of subjects where you get your podcasts. The Davis Now Lectures website is rt.ie forward slash radio one forward slash Davis Now Lectures. From me, producer Cleon and Ian Loon, thank you for listening.